I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. This episode of The Truth of the Matter is a crossover episode with another CSIS podcast, The Coronavirus Crisis Update, which I co-host with my colleague, Dr. Steve Morrison of CSIS. In this episode, we spoke to Dr. Ashish Jha, who is Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha believes firmly that after almost two years of a pandemic, that communication has become a critical part of public health. We talked about that with him, and we talked about the latest on Omicron and much more. Listen here for this crossover episode between Truth of the Matter and the Coronavirus Crisis Update. Andrew and I are thrilled today to again welcome onto the podcast Ashish Jha. Dr. Jha is the Dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University. He is a, a longtime friend and colleague dating back to, I think we first got involved in, in 2014-15 in the review of the Ebola, the study of the Ebola crisis that Harvard, where Ashish was at that time, and the London School of Tropical Medicine, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine launched a year-long effort, which I was part of, but which Ashish was leading along with Peter Piot. So welcome, Ashish, and thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me back, Steve. First thing I'd like to talk about is communications. And this is a topic and a theme that is dear to Andrew's heart, and it's something we brought up with other guests Many people who didn't imagine they were going to be front and center in explaining to Americans of all stripes what is happening in this pandemic find themselves in that role, and they came from diverse sort of backgrounds. You come as an, as an MD and a public health expert, but you don't come as a virologist. You don't come as an immunologist. You come as, with a more general background, uh, lots of expertise on domestic policymaking for a long time, and you've really been very successful at attracting lots of interest from different media outlets in order to get have you come forward and and convey to an American public and I and that's been repeated by other personalities too and we've been intrigued to know what that means like what explains or accounts for effectiveness and success in communicating the complexities to our diverse audiences in America what is it that people respond most favorably to? There's elements of trust. There's elements of dealing with uncertainty and complexity. There's elements of conveying a kind of quality of judgment in, in this field. And we are so polarized politically, yet I see you on Newsmax. I, as much as I see you on MSNBC, you've strived really, I think, valiantly to try and straddle or transcend some of the polarization. I don't think that's always possible. It seems to me that there's no turning back from this phenomenon, that people like yourself, Tyson Bell, Dr. Bell was with us recently from UVA. I expect that you're going to find that this kind of media segment remains vitally important in your own personal career moving forward and that the media itself has adapted to this. So just that's a mouthful, I understand, but it's important, and we wanted to try and get your reflections on that. Well, Steve, thanks for starting there. And let me start by saying a couple of things. First, it took me a few months to come to realize that engaging the media, or really it's about engaging the public through the media, 
was actually an important part of public health. That was the first word of the of the term public health. And that if we were going to ask people to fundamentally change the way they live, to wear a mask, to get vaccinated with a vaccine they hadn't even heard about until very recently, if we're going to ask them to make these profound changes in their lives, we need to explain to them what was going on. And we need to communicate that what the moment was. And we needed to do it in a way that was meaningful and made sense and, and people understood. And so whereas in the first couple of months of this pandemic, I saw the media stuff as a side thing of what I did, but I was focused on trying to do analysis and trying to understand what was happening with the pandemic. I very quickly came to appreciate that no, 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 part of practicing public health is engaging the public. And eventually, I think just came to embrace it more as a part of my job. And my approach on this has been really quite straightforward, which is I try to talk to people about pandemic issues the way I speak to friends of mine who are not experts, friends of mine who are not in medicine, who are not in public health. I have to think about my mom, who's a really smart person. She was a former school teacher in, in New York City. And she's a smart person, not a virologist, not an immunologist, doesn't need to know about the details of T cells and B cells. But she needs to understand um, that if, you know, if vaccine efficacy wanes, like, what does that mean? So people are going to get sick or they're not going to get sick. What does that mean? So that's been the strategy. And what I find is that the, the political kind of polarization often begins in kind of how we frame the questions. But the answers that people want are actually quite similar, whether you're a Newsmax consumer or an MSNBC consumer. You care about making sure you're safe. You care about getting on with your life, to be able to go to work, to have your kids go to school. And there's only a small minority that cares deeply about politics and winning and beating the other side. Even those people who are, who are very much shaped by kind of the, the, the information landscape we are in care more about their lives and how to live it in a way that is consistent with their values. And so I think I find that if I speak openly and plainly and simply and straight, in a straightforward way with respect towards people, it tends to land about the same for liberals and conservatives. You know, not always. And there's a lot of misinformation and people get stuck on some things. But it has not felt like some incredibly difficult challenge to talk to people whose views are different than mine. But it has meant trying to stay away from overly political framing and conversations. Do you ever feel like the success and popularity it pulls you into opining on things that you really shouldn't be opining on? I think I get asked and I try to stay away from it, you know, and because I don't think I serve whatever topic I'm being asked about or myself all that well by getting into things that are that I don't feel comfortable about. And so I have been asked about questions. And I say, you know, it's a really important question. I haven't thought much about it. I haven't studied it closely. And I don't know that I have anything useful. Yeah, I mean, that's it. been the kind of critique of Dr. Oz of getting popular trust, but then not knowing how to draw the boundaries of what's what's appropriate. Andrew. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Dr. John, thank you so much for being with us again. You know, as the country continues to report more deaths per day, deaths are accelerating more than 1,200 deaths a day on average and is on pace to surpass 800,000 total deaths in the coming days. You, you have a fairly unique position. I mean, I can speak for myself and my family. When we see you come on CNN or MSNBC, um, it, it's it helps us ease our our minds about the pandemic. And you know, I think that's because people really trust doctors 
and people have, you know, they might not trust science, but they trust doctors. You've been an incredible representative, you know, of your public health community, of the physician community, but we still have so many people unvaccinated. You know, the Washington Post reported last week that Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live, is the highest area of vaccinations in the in the country with over 93% of 12 and over being vaccinated. Other places in the country aren't like that. How do you speak to those populations to really try to get them to get vaccinated, to get the booster, to wear masks? I mean, you know, you're you're rising against a, a very powerful political tide and the polarization which we've alluded to. But we all know that if everywhere was vaccinated the way Montgomery County, Maryland was, we wouldn't be seeing 1,200 deaths a day. Correct. So I try to think about why so many people are not vaccinated. And I, I think there are two things going on. There are many things going on. There are many things going on. But there are at least a couple of things going on. Um, one is, of course, the sheer amount of misinformation that people are subjected to. But also that we have tied vaccinations and mask wearing to political identity. That people, a lot of my public health friends do this, I actually think it's really destructive, is they will talk about how Trump voters are less likely to get vaccinated and that Trump counties are unvaccinated and show graphs. And I find that to be not helpful at all. And I'm not even sure it's a good, it's not even true in some way. And it reinforces the tribal nature of those people who are the unvaccinated. They say, oh, well, you know, we're supposed to be unvaccinated. Correct. You've just tied their political identity. If you say, well, I voted for President Trump, maybe I shouldn't be getting vaccinated. Why is that helpful? And, you know, what I lead with, and I was on Newsmax and somebody, one of the questions was, somebody asked me, said, you know, can you just distill the myth that Trump voters don't get vaccinated. Uh, it was interesting that he asked me that as a Newsmax anchor. And I said, absolutely. You know, about 60% of Trump voters have gotten vaccinated. In fact, there are more Trump voters who've gotten vaccinated than unvaccinated. So don't do not talk to me about how President Trump's voters do not get vaccinated. That's nonsense. I think we got to break the political identity because once it's tied deeply to political identity, you can't then persuade people with data and facts because identity is incredibly powerful and, and excuse the phrase, trumps everything else, you know, in terms of these kinds of things. So, and I, I, I just don't think it's a useful framework. And I, what I try to do when I'm speaking to people is get them to try to relate to me as a person, because that's like who I am. And so one of the things I do a lot is I talk about, for instance, kids and vaccines. And when I came up, you know, when five to 11 year olds were getting vaccinated, I, I led with, I reviewed the data. And I've reviewed it not only as a doc, but as a dad of a nine-year-old, because I'm not going to get my nine-year-old vaccinated because it's good for society. It's not why he's my kid. I, my fiduciary responsibility is to his well-being. And I got him vaccinated because I think it's the right thing for my nine-year-old. And I lead with that as a way for people to understand that like, they're like, oh, yeah, I have a nine-year-old and relate to me in that way. So I think that's another really important technique is to sort of humanize yourself and to remind people that you're just a person and you're trying to read data and make decisions for the same reasons they're trying to make decisions, which is to try to figure out what's good for their kid, what's good for their families. I think it's helpful. I think it helps break through some of the the barriers. This came up in, in our conversation with Tyson Bell. The yeah, you know, he uses like you 
the personal stories of your family, your choices, your decision processes in how you've managed different pieces of this. Monica Gandhi is very similar. And I think that's a very important way of people seeing that you are living this and making choices and willing to connect and disclose and share. The other thing that I'd say that I think are very important in the success you've achieved is you're optimistic. You're optimistic in a, in a reasonable way, not excessively, but in a very reasonable way. You're plain spoken. You stay very calm in the way that you walk things through. You choose your language, it seems to me, very carefully so that the use of technical language and jargon is minimized. And you're, you don't represent a government or, or a part of our government, right? You stand outside of the polarization in some respects, and you're very careful not to be judgmental in the choice of things. I don't know how you would respond to what I've just said. I would say I aspire to do all of those things. Um, you know, it's, it's not, that's a very nice list. And that is a goal, that it certainly is a set of goals. Look, there are plenty of other people who can give you the Biden administration's views on what's happening. There are plenty of people who can give you the critiques of the Biden administration. I don't feel like that's the role people look for me at. at this point, what people want is someone who they think is a straight shooter, giving it to them pretty straight and giving it to them in a way that also reminds them that I live in a pandemic too. And I have to make the same set of decisions. My wife and I are trying to figure out what to do over not just Christmas, but over February, you know, vacation week and all the same things that other families are trying to think, when do we travel? Can we travel? Does grandma come visit? I think it's helpful for people to understand those things. There are other roles to play. I don't really have interest in playing them. And I think that's a great list, Steve, that I try to aspire to. Thank you very much. Let's shift to getting your thoughts on the end of this year. This has been a, a startling year in both ways that are both good and bad or disturbing and inspiring. And we're heading into year three with a certain apprehension, but a certain amount of hope as well. We're in the process now of, of finalizing a white paper that'll come out in January that tries to take some accounting of what has happened here. We know that in America, we're dealing with many different populations. You've, you've commented on you know, those that are strongly protected, not so protected, some that are remaining highly vulnerable. We know that we've differentiated ourselves geographically in very significant ways in terms of vulnerabilities and the like. Andrew made reference to sort of what Montgomery County looks like as one geography. We've had to deal with Delta and the transformations. We're trying to sort think our way through Omicron right now. And our thinking around this being a long war, four to five years with higher levels of insecurity and uncertainty, all of those things have happened. So as you are concluding this year, you know, what are you going to say to your grandchildren about this year in terms of the top line things that people are going to remember in the history books? And then secondly, what what's your advice on the things that have to be top of mind as we head into 2022? Boy, two really terrific questions. So let's start with 2021. You know, I think by the spring, I was pretty optimistic that we were going to, by the summer, we were going to be in a really good place. And that, in fact, the worst of the pandemic was really behind us. I've probably said that several times. And I think two things have caught me up off guard and they continue. One is I did not expect, if we were in April, 
March of eight or April of 2021. I don't think I expected that you'd have 20 to 30 percent of Americans just as unwilling to get vaccinated as there is. And that creates a huge vulnerability that doesn't go away easily. And I don't see massive movements on that. I don't see us getting to 95% vaccination rates anytime super soon. The second, of course, is Mother Nature, who threw Delta at us at a time where it turned out to be just so much more contagious than I think what we were expecting. Um, in some ways, you could have predicted either one of those things. We'd get a much more contagious variant or we'd hit a wall on vaccinations. But the fact that they both happened took what I thought were the waning days of the acute phase of the pandemic and then gave us a whole new surge in the summer and a surge in the winter in the South and North. And that's why we end the year with more deaths than we had last year, right? And what I've been struck by also is the limits of federal power. There's no way you could question the desire of the Biden administration to bring this pandemic to an end. I mean, I think they feel like their political fate is tied to it, but I don't want to suggest that it's just for politics. I, I'm, there are people of good will there who want to get it right, who would love nothing more than to get this pandemic under control. And it's remarkable to see how the federal government is limited in how much it can do on these things. That's a, so it's, it's some, somewhat humbling uh, and really interesting. I also sort of this year, I think, came to realize last year, 2020 was very muddled in terms of scientific communication because you had kind of politicization from the White House and then you had the agencies really trying to struggle. This year, there was an effort to really bolster the agencies and let CDC and FDA drive the ship much more. And I think the, the weaknesses of both CDC and FDA and our, and our beholdenness, our kind of fidelity to process over what was clearly urgent things that we needed to do really showed the weaknesses of, of the way our federal government works and the way our federal agencies work. The fact that it was very clear to everybody that we needed boosters by mid to late August, and it took us three months to sort it out through this. Can't do Moderna because they haven't applied. Only Pfizer has applied. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's, it's process, but it's also nonsense. I think there are a lot of lessons out of this year, which gets us to thinking about 2022. With Omicron on the horizon, uh, it's harder to say, you know, the pandemic is behind us. I think there are going to be two or three themes that are going to be really important in 22. One is the sheer fatigue of the population on restrictions, on personal behavior changes. I think a large chunk of the population is done with this pandemic. And even people who are being very, have been very cautious are frustrated and angry. And this is not going to be sustainable. So friends of mine in public health who are like, we need to have much more aggressive non-pharmaceutical interventions. I'm like, good luck with that. And I don't think the problem is that Joe Biden isn't out there beating the drums of masking and uh, lockdowns enough. I don't think that's the problem right now. I think the population is truly exhausted from this. And I don't think that that's going to be very sustainable. We could probably do some things around the margins. So whatever we're going to have to manage, the rest of Delta, an Omicron wave, whatever else Mother Nature throws at us, we're going to have to do it with NPIs not being readily available in our tool set. So then we're into much more of the kind of standard medical countermeasures, testing, monoclonal antibodies, vaccinations, a little bit of kind of masking and other stuff, but I don't think that's going to be. So, so that's a challenge. Omicron is going to be a much bigger problem that at least in the beginning part of 2022 than I think people are realizing. It's funny, you know, markets are funny in that 
the way they reacted when Omicron first became clear, like everybody just panicked, this is going to be a disaster. And most of us looked and said, it's not going to be a disaster. And then the data starts coming out that says not a disaster. And then everybody goes, oh, it's fine. It's also not fine. Somewhere between fine and disaster is what we're looking at. It's going to be very complicated. If we have a highly contagious variant that that breaks through vaccines, unless you're boosted at a very, very high level, you're going to get massive numbers of infections. I wouldn't be surprised if the Omicron wave leads to 50, 60, 80 million Americans getting infected with Omicron. It could also lead to them getting vaccinated. And there is some evidence that there's an uptick. There is, but unfortunately, not in big enough numbers to make a huge difference. I'm hoping it's sustained. That'd be great. But we're going to be in for a tumultuous first couple of months of this of this new year. And then if things settle down, we'll be okay. But again, you don't know, and I hate to predict about future variants. But there's one other bigger problem that I think we have not come to grips with, which is if we kind of get into a bit more of an endemic phase where the, we're not getting these big surges, you know, little bumps, little surges, we are going to be in for a situation where we might be having, let's say, 30,000, 40,000 deaths a year from COVID over the next few years. Well, people say, okay, well, we live with that, with the flu. That's a bad flu season. Sure. But now we're going to have two because flu is not going away. And our healthcare system is not going to be capable of managing COVID and flu every year. So we actually have to begin to make some long-term investments and changes, not through long-term mask wearing, but through things like substantial improvement in our ventilation systems in buildings across the country, in substantial improvements in our testing and vaccination strategies. I actually think we're in for a very, for a tumultuous few years where we're going to have to be sorting out a lot of complexities of how we're going to live with this virus because it, you can't just be like, we'll just live with it. Our healthcare system can't survive with COVID and flu every year. We barely make it with the flu in non-pandemic times. Um, so I think there's some long-term changes that are going to have to happen to manage all this. In America, we're hyper-focused. As always, we're hyper-focused on ourselves. We're constantly talking on cable news, in other media venues, in text, where, you know, on Twitter, everywhere, about how we need to get more Americans vaccinated and we need to get more Americans boosted. And here in this country, we have the means to do that. Nobody is very far from a vaccination. I think it's like everybody in this country is within five miles of a vaccination. But while we're hyper-focused on ourselves and we're learning to live with this as it goes into an endemic phase, what about the rest of the world? You know, Americans love, Americans love to travel. Americans love mobility. Americans want to go wherever they want, whenever they want. But the rest of the world, and particularly poorer countries, are really suffering and don't have the means to vaccinate the way we do. And then there's countries that want to just keep us out because we're the ones that aren't as highly vaccinated as them. What do we do about all this? I mean, the, the simple answer is, which you've heard from lots of people, is we've got to have a really aggressive strategy to vaccinate the world. And we've got to do that. And we, we, we don't live in on an island unto itself. The bigger, more, more interesting question is, what does that really look like? And how do, what is America's role over not just the next couple of months, over the next six months, a year? How does it compare to what China's role is going to be? And how do we deal with... So right now, for much of 2021, the primary problem was supply. Just didn't have enough vaccines. We're months away, if not already there, where that is no longer going to be the biggest issue. 
I mean, right now, what, what, what about 7.8, 7.9 billion doses administered, doing about a billion doses a month. You know, a lot of those are Chinese vaccines, but they're not as good, but they're still there and people are getting vaccinated with them. And, um, and by best estimates, we're going to have like 13, 14 billion doses administered by April, May, June. Maybe the problem, even by, I think by February, March of 2022, is in most places in the world, there'll be more vaccine supply than demand. Maybe it's not March, maybe it's April, but it's not July. And we're heading up against vaccine hesitancy and refusal, and we're running up against weak delivery capacity. So that's right. So we've got two sets of problems. We've got places with really weak delivery systems and vaccine misinformation is rampant. You know, uh, a friend of mine uh, who's a colleague from South Africa said, you know, the problem in South Africa is not what you don't export to us, the vaccines. The problem in South Africa is what you do export to us, Tucker Carlson. Tucker is very popular in South Africa and shared his videos are shared widely on WhatsApp channels and is a major source of of vaccine, lack of vaccine confidence, vaccine hesitancy that really is harming countries. And, you know, the soft power of America has a lot of upsides, but also has a lot of downsides. And this is where we're seeing it. So we've got to think about a global strategy for vaccinations that goes well beyond vaccine supply. Yes, of course, we have to work on long-term production on the African continent and elsewhere. We have to do but we've got to work on delivery systems and we got to work on misinformation if we're really going to be a part of a global solution. Yeah. You know, we're the greatest country in the world at communicating. And if you talk to our leading business executives, they say that, you know, everything is an idea that's innovative. Then there's the capital to make it move. And then there's the execution. And we're good at all those things. Why the heck are we not able to communicate to the world that help is coming? Supply is coming, the money is there, the will is there, and the execution is going to be there. And there's something you should also listen to other than Tucker Carlson being shared on WhatsApp. It's a really good question. And I have to say, I find it perplexing. And this is a place where I think the Biden administration has not has not done a good job. Um, they have not taken bold leadership in that communication, in developing a very clear global strategy. You have a sense, I mean, they talk about how many doses they've given out and they've given out a lot and they should be lauded for that. But it feels like an afterthought as part of a direct and clear strategy to make sure the world is getting vaccinated. I, I don't, I think they need clearer spokespeople. I think they need a clearer plan. And I know a lot of the folks there, they're really good people. And a lot of them are my friends. And I feel a little pain saying this, but you know, just the kind of, we've donated more vaccines than anybody else. That's great. We got to do better. And I argued with them back in January, February, that while it was true that America still had a supply problem and we needed to focus on the U.S., we needed to start developing a strategy for global vaccinations that was very aggressive because it was going to help us in the long run and, of course, help countries. You know, the, uh, what you're getting at is relates to your earlier point about discovering the limits of federal power. What we've discovered in terms of U.S. diplomacy, right? The president steps forward. There's a summit September 22nd. There's a ministerial secretary, Blinken. President's committed to a summit in the first quarter of 2022. But what we are discovering is that, first of all, we haven't invested diplomatically and, and listened carefully enough, particularly the global south, 
There's a lot of resentment and frustration. They feel like the approach is charity largely versus capacity building. And we've got to earn, re-earn that gratitude because there's a real sense about courting and nationalism, hypocrisy, indifference. They're watching the booster thing unfold. There's all of that. There's also the difficulty of, of trying to get those that are the most wealthy and powerful to come with us, right? And um, you look at the G7 action back in June. It's pretty disappointing. The summit in September 22nd, not very much in the concrete results. So it's, it's a longer game. It's a long war, but it's also one that requires deeper diplomatic investments. I want to shift to a discussion around the option of a national commission on the pandemic. This is something that we've talked about, many of our guests. Uh, we had Philip Zelico with us. We're all familiar with some of the barriers to getting such a thing going, right? It's Congress is broken at this moment and too polarized. You can't, it's not very realistic to expect Congress can be able to, like the 9-11 commission that Philip headed up back in 03 to 05, that you're going to have uh, some sort of blessing and authorization coming forward. It's got to be independent. We know that the current acute phase of this pandemic is not over. People are a little hesitant about being distracted about this. And we know that any kind of effort's going to be both retrospective and prospective. It's going to have to look at the Trump administration. It's going to invite some hits on that. So how do you transcend that with people of different political persuasions, but with gravitas? And we know that this administration has to cooperate in some level if you're going to have a sharing of documents and perspectives and the like. What's your thought on this debate? Because this is a big debate. We've heard that it's urgent to get moving, that we, time is wasting. It's urgent. I think it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. But the constituencies are weak. The people that have been most affected by this haven't really coalesced into a strong constituency. So what are your thoughts? Well, I think it is undoubtedly urgently needed. And, and the reason is that the narratives that have come out of this pandemic are one of, you know, other really simplistic narratives that, that will, do not serve our nation well. You know, on one side of the political aisle, it is that President Trump interfered with the science and that's why we had the outcomes that we had. The other side of the, the of it as well is just, you know, it's a respiratory virus and who can possibly control any of this stuff. And look, the Biden administration hasn't done any better. And it just it doesn't it, it, it lets you have political fights, but it doesn't get our country better prepared. And I think the one so where have I seen consensus across the political aisle? Certainly there is consensus that this is unlikely to be the last pandemic we will be dealing with. So to the extent that there is an urgency of of fixing stuff. I think that's really important. Second is there is consensus that our agencies actually are not prepared and not fit for purpose in this era that we live in. I, I don't, I think both on the, on the left and right, there's a recognition that neither the FDA nor the CDC, despite terrific people in them, are agencies that have served us as well as they needed to. And there are probably other areas of consensus. I mean, I think there's broad consensus that the private sector has played an incredibly helpful role and that there are new models of partnerships between the federal government and private sector. Maybe one more is really thinking about strengthening state capacity. The truth is public health is and always will be, I think always will be in America, a state issue. And, and so then the question is, what's the right relationship between federal and state partnership? I mean, there are these fundamental issues 
where I think actually Democrats and Republicans are closer than they are apart. And if we can highlight those and identify those and then drive an, an effort to try to address those things, and if the hit is you take some of the political issues that are important but spend less time, maybe the focus is a little less on the uh, on some of the nonsense that came out of the Trump White House, but more on the these broader issues, that should be able to develop a consensus. And then the urgency of we can't just take this horrendous two years and just leave it and say, no, no, it was just politics. I mean, I, I think there are enough people who feel like we got to do better next time. And so finding those areas of consensus strike me as a really important way, a path forward. But the last point, which is where I started with, is it would be a huge disservice to our nation if we didn't have a commission like this. Because I don't know that we're going to be able to make the kinds of changes that we need to make by tinkering around the edges. You know, and a great data point came out this week that also argues for a national commission, and that was the Global Health Security Index report that showed that the United States and 190 some other countries are not prepared for the next pandemic. So we need to learn those lessons and we need to, we need to, you know, create policy. Correct. And we need to improve our agencies and how they function and how they're funded and how they work and what their remit is. And, and by the way, the other thing, of course, we need to do is we need to understand how is all of this and the public health apparatus of America going to interact and engage with the security apparatus of America, which is going to obviously have a much larger role in pandemic preparedness in the future. And I'd like to do these things a bit more deliberately that a commission like this could both help us understand and, and lay out a path than to do it kind of haphazardly, which is what's going to happen if we don't have such a commission. Thank you. Let's close with a discussion around innovation in the training and education of the next generation of public health leaders. Uh, you're the dean at the Brown uh, University School of Public Health. You're new there. You're coming in with a mandate to shake things up and rethink in the midst of this pandemic, what are we going to need? And there's been a certain static quality to some of the training models and up to this point. And I think this is a major moment. You're, you've, you're beginning to build some new capacities, recruited some wonderful people. Claire Wardle, Jennifer Nuzzo are going to be coming to Brown, which is wonderful news. Tell us your thoughts on the type of innovations required uh, what is the what what is the next generation going to look like if the training is effectively updated and modified, innovated? Oh, I appreciate the question, and, and and the basis of that question I think is exactly right, Steve. Which is public health education today looks not that different from what public health education looked like 40, 50 years ago. The world has changed a lot, and by the way, it had changed a lot before this pandemic hit. It's just education had not caught up. And in fact, some of the public health failures is because of our uh, public health schools and public health systems not having been updated. So there are a few things in my mind that are really important. I mean, obviously, basic training in epidemiology and biostatistics and data is really important. It's at the core of it. But in my mind, there are a few sets of things that I've been really focused on. One is bringing new people into this space. There are a lot of people with you know, we traditionally think of public health people as sort of physicians or they're people with certain types of background. Those are very important people to play this. I mean, obviously, I'm a physician. I, I, I believe in that model on some level, on a personal level. But the truth is that there are a lot of people who come from very different backgrounds, whether they be political science or sociology or, or national security issues, who, who actually would benefit from public health education. 
and who would benefit public health education. So one is broadening the scope of who comes to a public health school and finding ways of attracting those people. But the way you attract them is also making sure that your curriculum is relevant to them. And that begins us going down paths of thinking about really training people on, on public communication in a way that we never have before. I mean, their health communication is often this like little side elective that people took, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about direct and deep engagement with the public and how do you do that? One of the, the major problems of public health schools is, you know, public health schools tend to, to run pretty left in terms of its politics and tend to think about the uh, role for government. And it is a problem because the people we train who go out and become health secretaries and health commissioners work in red states as much as blue states and often find themselves working with governors and political leaders who have a very different worldview of the role of government. And we don't train them very well to manage that. So one of the people we just hired was Scott Rivkes, who was a Surgeon General of Florida for two years under Governor DeSantis. And we did a really great job in, in, in managing a very complex situation. But he was the COVID coordinator for Florida for two years. And part of my goal of, of bringing someone like a Scott in is to start training people on how do you work with diverse political leaders. So I think public health schools have to take a very deep look at who are you bringing in, what are you training people on, and how do you make the, the training relevant for the work they will have in the world as it is, not in the world that you might wish it. That what uh, existed. And the best way to do that is to get really innovative thinkers like Scott, but also Jennifer Nuzzo and Claire Wardle. I would think also you're going to have to deal with rebuilding confidence that people can step into those positions and not be attacked because this is a field that's in collapse and it's a field that's under siege and it's a field that's being stripped of authority yeah. and legislative rights and, and the like. It's, um, it's a field that people are going to run away from. Yeah, it's interesting because on one hand, applications for public health schools are up. Ours uh, uh, more than doubled last year. It's a lot of interest. I think we have to engage public and policymakers much more directly. We have to explain to them why the public health authorities exist, uh, the authority of public health agencies exists, why they should not be stripped. you got to explain it to people in a way that people understand. And I, I think we haven't done enough of that. So I think helping train our public health folks to be much more comfortable engaging in those conversations and to understand it's going to be really important. The personal stuff, the personal attack stuff is really going to be, I think that's a place where I, I, I'd love ideas on what we can do because it's been a huge issue. The number of friends I have who have been senior public health leaders who have quit over the last year, just, you know, the, the constant attacks are, um, are tiring and demoralizing and, and a real problem. No, it's a crisis. And it's one that will affect this next generation deeply, I would think, in how they choose what they, where they will be comfortable going and what they will do. Yeah. Dr. Zhao, you've been so generous with your time. We like to ask all of our guests, as you know, what keeps them optimistic going forward? What are you optimistic about going into 2022? Yeah, I'll tell you what I'm optimistic about. I am optimistic. I, I, I keep getting just reminded of what an incredibly dynamic and capable global scientific community we have. Take Omicron. We identified it within eight days or five neutralization studies that are out already, and we're starting to get a sense of how well our vaccines are going to work. Whatever Mother Nature throws at us, we have this incredible scientific community that can respond to it. That is our ace in the hole. That's how we get through this, how we manage it. Look, 
science is not just the biological sciences, it's also the social, social sciences where we struggle a lot more on how do you engage people and how do you... So don't get me wrong, we've got a lot of challenges, but the biomedical community is just firing on all cylinders, not just in the United States, but across the globe and how they're working with each other. It's unbelievable. And that is, I think, just a huge asset that we have as humanity. And we got we to gotta be deeply thankful for that and it keeps me optimistic. Thank you so much, Ashish. And again, thanks for the time you've shared with us this afternoon. And we wish you the best for the holidays and the end of the year. And we'll uh, look forward to continuing to speak with you and have these conversations as we head into the new year. I look forward to it too. And thank you both. Real pleasure. Have good holidays and stay well and stay safe. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 